Well, happy Lord's Day, Austin Stone Community Church. And uh, I know all your various tri- your campuses here around um, Austin. I cannot tell you how honored um, that I am to be here, uh, how long I have been looking forward to uh, being with you and being with Matt and Jennifer. Um, I am, uh, your church has been such uh, an encouragement to us, an inspiration, a challenge. Uh, the way that the gospel clarity that you demonstrate here in one of America's greatest cities, uh, the way that you send people all over the world. I understand that this August you're going to be celebrating your hundredth person, uh, the fulfillment of that goal you've had for several years uh, to get people overseas to unreached people groups. Uh, when I was here last time, I think you were on number 11, uh, if I remember that rightly. So I just feel like that is something we're celebrating. And so know that how much of an inspiration that is to us. In Raleigh, Durham, as Pastor Matt mentioned, he is one of my, uh, my one of my closest um, friends. In recent years, we've become very close. Uh, you know, he's always been a, um, a pastoral hero to me as a, as a young boy. I used to listen to his sermons on the radio when I when I was trying to drift off to sleep. But in, in recent years, he's become not only a mentor, he's become a very close friend. Uh, what I can tell you about him is that there's not two Matt Carters. Uh, I find this with a lot of people in ministry. There's a stage presentation of their pastor, and then there's a you know kind of a down to earth, the same guy that talks to you every week that I hear on podcasts is the same guy uh, that I share dinner with. And so um, you were blessed and uh, I am grateful for your church's presence and uh, and his presence in my life. The church that I pastor in North Carolina, as he mentioned, is very similar to your church in a lot of ways. Uh, We have a lot of college students. We're near UNC Chapel Hill, Duke University, NC State, and some others, uh, which means we have an inordinate amount of college students at our church, uh, which means a couple things about us that are true of you. Uh, We are dirt poor as a congregation. Uh, compared to our size. Uh, our uh, college students sort of discovered our church uh, back nine, ten years ago. In, in like three weeks, our attendance tripled because college students traveled in herds uh, and our, our, our weekly giving went up by $13.48 during that same time. Uh, one of my favorite moments as a pastor is in between two of our services, one of our ushers comes into my green room and he's got a, um, an offering bucket and in it is a bacon, egg, and cheese biscuit from a college student with a little note on it that says, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I unto you. Uh, So that is the world that we live in. That is the world that you live in. Uh, But we know that we have a lot of potential missionaries. And so uh, we are grateful for um, for you. Pastor Matt, as he mentioned, asked me to talk a little bit with you about the assurance of salvation. Um, I released a book uh, a little over a year ago called, or actually almost two years ago now, called Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. Uh, Now, there are a lot of people who love the title, and then there are some people who absolutely deplore the title. Uh, My oldest daughter, who is 11, uh, when she found out that I was coming up releasing a book, she said, what's the title, Daddy? And I said, told her, stop asking Jesus into your heart. And she got this look of absolute terror on her face. Daddy, why would you ever want to tell someone to stop doing that? Uh, so I explained to her kind of what I was trying to go after in the book. And she, uh, uh, she listened politely for a couple minutes. She said, well, that doesn't sound like it's going to be a very long book. Um, you could probably say that in about 10 pages. How long is your book? And I said, well, it's about 100. She said, what else did you say for 90 pages? Because you could cover what you needed to say in 10 pages, uh, which is probably true. So if you happen to see a copy of it, read 10 pages, put it down, you'll be fine. Um, I wrote this book because for years I 
personally struggled with the assurance of my salvation um, bitterly. Uh, no matter how many times I prayed uh, what is called the sinner's prayer, I, I, I couldn't seem to get this assurance that I was, what was seeking after. Uh, if there were a Guinness Book of World's Records for how many times somebody could pray the sinner's prayer, I'm pretty confident that I would at least either hold the record or that I would be in the top three or four contenders. Um, I prayed the sinner's prayer. It's probably no exaggeration. Probably between the time that I was 14 years old and 22 years old, I probably prayed it 5,000 times. Every time I was in a place where the guy was sharing the gospel and he gave an invitation to the hymn, I would pray the prayer. Um, you know, if they'd ask for a show of hands, I'd raise my hand. If they asked us to come forward, I would come forward. You know, throw a stick in the fire and, or whatever it was at youth camp. You know, I've been saved in youth camps all over the nation. I'm seriously, every denomination in America has a record of a J.D. Greer salvation. Um, I've been baptized. This is not a joke. I've been baptized four times. Four times. It was a little, I mean, it got embarrassing. Um, you know, it was, I was like a staple in our church's baptismal uh, celebrations. It gave me my own locker in the baptismal changing area because how many times I went through there. Um, I used to think that I was alone in this struggle of finding assurance and knowing that you know, because I, I just didn't want to be wrong about it. I used to think that I was all by myself, but I'll tell you now that as a pastor, um, especially of a lot of younger people, I know that that is something that is epidemic um, in um, Christian circles. Uh, you know, did I pray the prayer right? Uh, did I repent enough? Was I sorry enough for my sin? Did I surrender enough? Did I understand grace enough? Or maybe I've fallen back into sin after I prayed the prayer. I mean, how far is too far? How far can you fall before, you know, it shows that it's not legit? So this book, in many ways, is a lot about my own struggle to find assurance of salvation. Uh, on the other side of the coin, I've become increasingly concerned for a number of people in my own church who seem to feel sure they're going to heaven on the basis of a prayer that they prayed that somebody told them that if they pray this prayer would guarantee them heaven. A 2011 Barna study shows that 50% of Americans say they have prayed some kind of sinner's prayer at some point, even though half of that number have no regular presence of any kind in church or have lifestyles and worldviews that in no way differ from those outside of the Christian faith. But when you talk to many of these people and you tell them that they need Jesus to be saved, they need to repent and believe, they say, oh, well, been there, done that, prayed the prayer, filled out the little card. I uh, got it right here in the front flyleaf fly leaf of my Bible. My grandma's tear stains are on it and Billy Graham signed it personally. And so that guarantees that I'm going to heaven. God never promised us, listen, he never promised to save us because we prayed a prayer. God saves us when we repent and believe the gospel. You might express that repentance and faith in a prayer, but that's not the prayer itself that saves you. It's the heart attitude behind that prayer that lays hold of salvation. And sometimes that prayer that people pray ends up working a little bit like an immunization. And you know how an immunization works when they want to um, immunize you against a disease. They give you a dead version of the disease so that your body develops the antibodies to be able to withstand the live version of it if you ever encounter it. For many people, that kind of ritual, whether you call it confirmation or walking an aisle or maybe even getting baptized, it becomes an immunization that keeps you away from the living gospel. Uh, when I, uh, a few, several years ago, I was... Um, 
uh, playing one-on-one basketball uh, at a gym that I worked out at. And uh, the guy that I was playing with, uh, playing basketball with, looked, uh, he just didn't look like he fit the Christian profile. Um, you know, he had every single square inch of his body was covered in a tattoo. Um, he had hair, long hair down to his lower back. Um, he had so many piercings in his face. He looked like he'd fallen face first into a, a tackle box. Um, not that there's anything wrong with those three things. Cause I know that if you see a guy like that in Austin, you're like, Hey pastor, but you know, um, but in the conservative little town in North Carolina, where I was at living at the time, it's just, he didn't look like he fit the Christian profile. So I began to share Christ with him. And, uh, and uh, about, about two paragraphs in, sharing my testimony, he looks back at me and he says, he says, he says, puts a ball in his hip. He said, dude, are you trying to witness to me? And I was shocked. He knew the word witness. And I said, I said, well, yeah. He said, man, that's awesome. Nobody's tried to witness to me in like six years. He goes, I suppose it's the way I look. He said, but man, you're wasting your breath. He said, I grew up in a, a conservative, reformed Baptist home, uh, he said, and I uh, went to youth camp one year, and man, I gave my life to Jesus, and I became super Christian. He said, I became super Christian. I went home. I led two or three of my friends to Christ. I only listened to Christian music, positive and encouraging all the time. I did a daily quiet time. I went on mission trips. He said, I had the full pedigree. He said, that was like seventh grade. He said, ninth grade going into high school, I'd been two years of living for Jesus. He said, ninth grade, his words, he said, I discovered sex. He said, so I decided that I would put God on hold for a while because I knew I couldn't follow God and then do sexually whatever I wanted to do. So I just put my belief in God on hold for a while. He said, then I got into college and decided it's probably more, probably, probably easier just to not believe in God at all than to live this kind of hypocritical life. So he said, I'm an atheist now. He said, to be honest with you, it's probably an atheism driven by my desires, not so much by my intellect, but that's what I am now. He said, but here's what's awesome. He goes, you're a Baptist, right? Looking at me, a Reformed Baptist. I said, I said well, yeah. He said, um, he, was, he goes, the church I grew up in was Reformed Baptist, and we believed, like you believe, that once saved, always saved. He said, so therefore, when I was, you know, saved there at that camp for two years, um, you know, and, and, and I lived it out for two years. He goes, even if you're right and I'm wrong that there is a God and Jesus is the only Savior, he said, I'm covered, man, because once saved, always saved. I can't lose my salvation. Now, what do you say back to a guy like that? Right? I mean, because at least a lot of what he's saying is true. And I know that most people are not that extreme, but there's a sense in which many people go through the ritual, they sign the car, they check the box. They're <laughs> like, well, now that's done. Matthew 7, Jesus talks about a group of people that will say to him on the last day, Lord, Lord, whom Jesus says he's going to turn away with the words, depart from me, I never knew you. Can you imagine the terror that fills your heart when you hear those words, especially when you consider what they said to Jesus, Lord, hey, we, we asked you to come into our lives. We, we know that you're the Lord. We were involved in our church. In fact, Jesus even describes them as casting out demons in his name. I don't know about you guys here at the Austin Stone, but when you get selected to be on the demon exorcism committee, that's varsity. I mean, you're cream of the crop at that point. This was the cream of the crop. Jesus looks into their faces and says, yeah, you prayed the prayer, you joined a small group, you got baptized, you went on the mission trip. I never knew you. And they go into hell with the assurance of a salvation that somebody told them they had because they prayed a prayer the right way and it considered them from, or it kept them from considering what the Bible really said about conversion. And I want to be clear as I get into the book of Hebrews, I want to be clear that there's nothing wrong with a sinner's prayer. I mean, that's what conversion is. It's a cry to God 
for mercy. Right? It's, it's putting repentance and faith. It's crying out to God in those things. And it makes sense to express those things in a prayer. Romans 10, 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The tax collector in Luke chapter 18 beating his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's nothing wrong with that. But it's not the prayer that saves. It's the repentance and prayer. Repentance and faith behind that prayer is what lays hold of salvation. And I believe treating it or reducing it to simply a prayer that we pray has had two tragic effects. Number one, it keeps assurance from some who shouldn't have it. Or excuse me, it keeps assurance from some who should have it. And then it gives it to some who should not. So what I want to do after what I will acknowledge is a rather lengthy introduction there. I want to give you the world's longest introduction. Um, The nature of saving faith in the Bible. I want you to look in the book of Hebrews at what it is. And then how to know that we have it. So that's what I want to do for the next, the amount of time that I have remaining. What is the true nature of saving faith? And how is it that you know that you have it? So if you have a Bible, I would invite you to take it out and open it to Hebrews chapter 3. Or if you are super cool and wear skinny jeans and you have it on an iPad, then you can take that out and turn that on right now and scroll down to Hebrews 3. My pastor, Matt, when I was growing up, used to say that the sweetest sound to him in all the world was the sound when he announced the text to hear the ruffling of the pages of God's word. I never get to hear that as a pastor. Never. I mean, I can look out there and see the warm glow of God's word on your faces, which is about as good as I'll get, but I'll take it, whatever it is, all right? As you're turning there, let's ask a first question as we get into Hebrews. Does God even want us to know for sure that we're going to heaven? Because you see, a lot of people would answer that question, no. Because see, heaven is like the reward that God dangles out there in front of us to get us to act right, right? You know, it's like the carrot. If you remove that carrot, then why are people going to keep, you know, doing what they ought to be doing? If you students, if you, your professor walked in the first day and said, hey, no matter what you do in this class, you get an A. <laughs> are you going to study for the next quiz? Probably not. So they're like, well, if you promise somebody they're going to heaven and they know for sure, then they'll lose their edge to keep doing what God wants them to do. So is that, is that, does God even want us to know for sure? The book of Hebrews answers resoundingly, yes, he does. Hebrews 10, verse 18, which is something we, I'm not going to read, but you can look up later. Where it says that he wants us to draw close to God with a full assurance of faith. Here is why. Let me borrow a little bit from the gospel of John here. God is a father. And any father that loves his children does not want his children to be unsure about his relationship with them, right? I mean, I'm a dad of four kids. They're all under the age of 11. When, 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 when I left to come down here to Austin, I did not get my kids and sit them in a room and say, hey, I just want you to know daddy loves you. He thinks about you all the time. He's going to go on this trip. He's going to buy prizes for you. He's going to come back. It's going to be awesome. Or maybe he's not really your daddy at all. Maybe this whole thing is a big ruse. Maybe my real family lives somewhere else and maybe I'm never coming back. And you sit around and think about that while I'm gone and let that compel you to become better children. <laughs> not one time have I ever said that. I want my children to live in security. The heavenly father does not want any of his children unsure about where they stand with him. The other analogy John uses is, is when Jesus is getting ready to leave, he said, you're, you're, I'm like your father, you're like my children. And he said, he said you're like my lover. I'm like the, the groom that is proposed and has gone away to get things ready. I, I remember when I was engaged to my wife, or soon-to-be wife, Veronica, I did not want her unsure about my relationship to her. She was a student at the University of Virginia. I was a student in North Carolina. We would spend, you know, the weekends, you know, together in one of the two places, and then we'd have to go back to school in our different places. The last thing that I would have wanted is for her to be unsure about how I felt about her. 
Why? Because if she was unsure, then she would be open to, you know, the advances of some thug guy up at the University of Virginia. But when she was assured of the awesome sauce that she had in me, then she was immune to, you know, to their advances. Jesus does not want us unsure because the only thing that gives us the capacity to be able to withstand the draw of idolatry is when we're more sure of the joy we have in him than we are the, the, the temptations that the world puts out in front of us. First John four nineteen. we love him. Why? We love him because we're afraid that if he went on, he's going to throw us in hell. No, we love him because he first loved us. It is assurance of the love of God for us that produces love for God in us. Martin Luther called the idea that, that you wouldn't know for sure if you were going to heaven as, as a way of motivating you. He called that the damnable doctrine of doubt. The damnable doctrine of doubt. Because he said, sure, it will produce some surface level obedience. People acting right so God will let them into heaven. He said, but beneath that river, beneath that, beneath that little thin veneer of, uh, of, of obedience is a, a, a rushing river of pride and, and selfishness and, and self-righteousness. So yes, God does want us to know for sure. That's where it starts. So what does the writer of Hebrews say is the nature of saving faith? If you're taking notes, I'm going to give you four things. Number one, saving faith is a posture, not a prayer. Saving faith is a posture, not a prayer. In the book of Hebrews, faith is always presented as synonymous with action. You switch the words in and out all the way through the book of Hebrews. I'll give you a few examples. Hebrews 3, verse 18 and 19. And to whom did God swear that he would not enter his rest, but to those who were See this word? Disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. See how he uses those two words interchangeably? Unbelief and disobedience are the same things. Hebrews chapter 11, what we call the great faith chapter, the great hall of faith, goes through and lists all these great men and women of faith, but it describes every single one of them in terms of an action. Noah built, Abraham left, Jacob blessed, Joshua fought. This is interesting. In the Hebrew language, there's no noun for faith. There's no noun for faith in Hebrew. Faith is only a verb, which means that the people in Hebrews 11 became famous for something they didn't even have a name for in the Old Testament. Why? Because listen, faith, biblically speaking, does not exist apart from action. Belief does not become faith until you act on it. We describe that often, and perhaps you've heard that before, like sitting down in a chair. You know, if I have a chair up here and I'm thinking about sitting down on it, it doesn't really matter what I say to the chair before I sit down on it. I can walk up to it and say, chair, thou art a sturdy chair. You look like you are worthy. You look like you could hold the weight of my body. I would like you to invite you to be my personal chair for these next two hours, that I could sit the weight of my body and you would hold me up. If the chair had ears, maybe it would be touched that I would say that. But the point is not what I say to the chair. The point is the action I take toward the chair. It's not the prayer that I pray toward the chair. It's the posture that I take in the chair. In the same way, the point is not what I say to Jesus. The point is the posture that I take toward Jesus. You see, you can really only be in one of two positions in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ. Right, this weekend, you're in one of two positions. You're either standing in control of your own life or you are seated in full surrender to his lordship. One of those two. You're either standing in the idea that if you're good enough, you're going to earn heaven, or you are seated in the belief that Jesus has paid it all and he's done everything necessary to save you. 
The point is not what you said. The point is the posture that you are in. Saving faith is, not a, po- is a posture. It's not a prayer. Which leads me to the second observation from Hebrews. Number two, saving faith endures for a lifetime. Saving faith endures for a lifetime. Take care, brothers, Hebrews 3 verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in you, in any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart causing you to fall away from the living God. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You see that if? The writer of Hebrews tells the believers to be vigilant about keeping the gospel alive in their hearts because they will be saved if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Here's how he says it in chapter 2, Hebrews 2. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. He's using the metaphor of a harbor, and there's a typhoon going by, and these ships have pulled into the harbor to drop anchor. And he's like, hey, you've got to drop anchor deep, because if not, you're going to drift back out into the waters of judgment. Now, I'm going to be honest. That is different than I, and than how I, as a Reformed Baptist, learned to talk about eternal security. I was taught to think of eternal security, the idea that once you were saved, always saved. It was a little deal that you made with God, a ceremony that you went through in which you asked Jesus into your heart as long as you were sincere about repentance and faith. And it was like a contract that God could never renege on no matter what. In fact, it's probably epitomized in the way that I learned to share the gospel was with one of those, um, does the word gospel tract mean anything to you? You might grow up in a church that we had a whole rack full of gospel tracts, you know, that little, what, like things that explain the gospel. Uh, you had the, you know, the no nonsense, give them to it, give them, give it to them straight and alliterated version tracts. You had the comic book tracts. Um, then you had the, um, the my, my, my least favorite was the fake $10 bill with a, here's a real tip, trust Jesus on the back, you know, track. Um, by the way, if you ever give one of those to a waitress in lieu of a tip, that is what purgatory, that's why God invented purgatory for people that do that. Chick tracks were deluxe, featuring a multi-page comic theme. And so we were taught, you know, you give them to waitresses, you give them to, you know, people who look nervous on airplanes. Uh, one of my friends, his ministry in college was to put one in every, like, public restroom in Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, you know, evangel- evangelical littering or something like that. Um, we would put them in VHS tapes. We were returning to Blockbuster. Uh, you put a track there. It's just, it's the cheap way of witnessing. Well, I had a guy, a speaker at our church, I kid you not, um, who taught us how to drive down the road at what speed and how to hold a track at an angle and let it go at a speed so that it would land at the feet of the person that we was on the street corner. Um, I wish I were making that up, but I'm not. But at the end of these gospel tracks, after you led somebody to pray the prayer, you were always to say something like this, now you're a child of God. And nothing you can ever do can change that. And so now because of that, you ought to, you know, not be afraid anymore, not go, you know, go to church and all that kind of stuff, all right? But that's, listen, that is not how the apostles or the writer of Hebrews talk to new converts. He's like, hey, you're saved if you persevere to the end. Paul and Barnabas, Acts 14, 22, tell their new converts, continue in the faith because only by persevering through many tribulations will you enter the kingdom of God. Now, Does that mean that you can lose your salvation? (laughs) No, there are too many places in the Bible that teach you that you cannot. John 6, 39, this is the will of the one that sent me, that I would lose nothing, that I would raise every single one up on the last day of all that you have given me, all of them I brought to you. Romans chapter 8, verse 38, for those that God foreknew, those are the ones he predestined, the ones he predestines, those he called, the ones he called, those he justified, the ones he justified, the ones he glorified. There is nothing in there that gives you a chance to get off that train. 
Once God puts you on that train, you make it all the way to the station. It's all about what God is doing in you, not about what you're doing for him. All right, so once saved, always saved. But what it is showing you, listen, is that one of the marks of true faith is that it endures all the way to the end. One of the marks of true faith is that it endures to the end. Jesus told a parable to this end. It was the parable of the the sower who went out to scatter some seed. And the sower throws some seed, and there was a certain kind of seed that it said sprang up quickly. Sprang up quickly, then the sun came out, and the weeds grew up, and it choked the seeds, and they died. Here is the question. Do those seeds that spring up quickly and die, do they represent saved people or unsaved people? They represent unsaved people who for a while look like they're saved people. Because Jesus and the writer of Hebrews and the whole New Testament teaches that one of the signs of truly saving faith is not its intensity at the beginning, but its duration for a lifetime. And that's a very important concept to understand. We have students at our church come back from high school you know, camp, and I'll talk to a group of girls, and they're all excited because they all got right with God. And I want to get excited, and I do get a little excited. But I'm not totally excited yet because I know that I've been in enough youth camps to know that, that there's a moment in every youth camp week, it's usually on Thursday night after they've gotten two hours of sleep every night you know, up until then. They're emotionally fragile, and the worship leader does you know, the, 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 all the favorite songs and tells a story about some kid dying in a car wreck. And then they're like, who wants to get saved? And one girl burst into tears. And you know how it is with middle school girls. That's like a disease, <laughs> you know, it's all down the road. And they all come forward and they're like, you know, I'm, we're not going to date anymore. And we're not going to sin. Um, I'm a believer in Jesus, not a believer in Justin, you know, and, and that's their commitments at that point. Right. And I, so, but I, I'm excited because they cried their eyes out, but I don't really get excited until a year later when they come back and they're still walking with Jesus. I tell them, if you come back to me 10 years from now and you're still faithfully following Jesus, I'll do a backflip. That's when I'll show my real emotion. Because the proof of salvation, listen, is not the intensity of the faith at the beginning. It's, it's, in, it's, in, in, it's endurance over time. So it is true, once saved, always saved. But it is also true, once saved, forever following. Those who endure to the end show they had the salvation you could never lose. Those who don't show they never had it to begin with. Which leads me to number three. Assurance is found in a present posture, not a past memory. Assurance is found in a present posture, not a past memory. If it's true that saving faith is a posture, not a prayer, and it's true that saving faith endures for a lifetime, then assurance comes not from a memory of something you experienced in the past, It comes from the posture that you're in in the present. Let's go back to the chair one more time. Most of you that I can see right now and at our other campuses are, you're seated right now, which means that at some point you made a decision to sit down in the chair that you're in. How do we know that you made that decision? Is it because you remember making the decision? Do you remember like, oh yeah, I remember walking in, looking at it and saying, oh, that looks sturdy, a polycarbonite blend. That's a good brand name. I think it'll hold me up. This is gonna be awesome. Boom, do you remember that? No, it was most likely a subconscious decision. But we know that you made that decision, not because you remember making the decision, but because of the posture that you're in. How do we know, how do you know that you made a decision to trust in and surrender to Jesus Christ? Is it because you remember the moment that it happened? No, it's not the past memory. It's the present posture that shows you whether or not you made the decision. You see, the reason I say this is because a lot of people get caught up looking back to what happened 5, 10, 15, 50 years ago. 
And they begin to have doubts about whether or not they're saved today when that's really never where the Bible tells you to look for assurance. Conversion is the beginning of a posture that you assume for the rest of your life. How do I know that I am saved today? It's not because I remember what happened when I was 16 years old. It's because right now I am in a posture of submission and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that means if never before, then I am saved right at this moment. Assurance, as it's talked about in the Bible, is always a present tense thing. It's based on your present posture, not your past ministry or past, past memory. And I say this because there are Christians that get caught up looking two years, five years, 10 years. When I look for assurance, I look back 2,000 years and say, Jesus paid it all. And I begin to rest on his finished work there. And I've continued to rest on it for the rest of my life. Somebody says to me, well, I don't remember the prayer. It doesn't matter. What's your present posture? That's the proof you made the decision. In the same way, somebody else who says, well, I I do remember the prayer. I just wasn't that emotional. Question is, are you in the posture of repentance and faith right now? You're like, well, I was really emotional, but if this weekend you're not in a posture of repentance and faith, then we have reason to doubt whether or not that prayer that you prayed was significant at all. Now, I know that begs the question, and I'll deal with it real quickly and then make our last point here. Is it possible to be saved in the backslide? Backslide is just a word that Christians have used over the years to mean like you, you, know, you start out well and then you sort of you know, slide back. Is it possible to be saved in the backslide? Well, the answer is absolutely. Some of the greatest Christians in the Bible spent years, you know, to go back to our analogy, the chair, getting out of the chair. King David, you know, slept with his best friend's wife, killed his best friend and lied about it for a year. That's varsity level sinning, right? So he got out of the chair. Right, so yes, it is possible to backslide, but one of the signs of saving faith is that God keeps bringing you back to the posture of repentance and belief. Philippians 1.6 says that he that begins a good work and you will complete it, which means that when you get up and you begin to take charge of your life and you forget the gospel, the Holy Spirit brings you back down and that's one of the proofs that saving faith is at work in your heart. <laughs> one of my favorite verses on this, I love it, Proverbs 24.16 A righteous man, says King Solomon, falls seven times and gets back up again. Seven? Imagine following a guy through the mall that falls seven times. Like the first time he falls, you're like, dude fell. Second time he falls, you're pulling out your camera to YouTube it. You know, like this is going to be awesome. Third time he falls, fourth time he falls, you're like, I feel bad for filming the guy because clearly he's got a problem. Right? The seventh time, you're calling an ambulance because who falls seven times? By the way, the word, the number seven in Hebrew means the number of completion. A righteous man falls morally seven times his whole life, but gets back up again. You don't show your righteousness based on the fact that you never fall. You show that you're saved, that you're righteous based on what you do after you fall. He that began a good work in me completes it. So when I fall away, he lifts me back up and sets me down. One of the proofs of saving faith is that it endures for a lifetime, and that's where assurance comes from. It's your present posture. You say, I'm backsliding now. I'm not walking with God now. Do I need to get saved or do I need to, you know, rededicate or whatever that is, you know? I'm not sure if I'm you know, saved and backsliding or if I was never saved to begin with. In one sense, it doesn't matter. Because either way, the posture that you are to assume is the same. 
It is a posture of submission and faith. Last one, number four, saving faith produces a new nature. Saving faith produces a new nature. The writer of Hebrews, after warning them in the strongest language of what would happen if they fell away, says to them, look at this. Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. In other words, I see in you evidence of the new nature. I see your new attitude towards sin. I see how when you fall away, God quickly brings you back to repentance. So I am confident that what God started in you, he's going to continue. One of the evidences of the new nature is that you begin to have a whole new set of appetites, changes that begin to take place in you. This is kind of an earthy example, but let me, it'll make the point. It's kind of like if um, a dog was, you know, or actually let's take a dog out for a minute. Um, somebody on the way in this morning threw up right here in front of the stage. I know it's gross, but just visualize. Big, warm, steaming pile of vomit. There's not, listen, it, there's not a one of you in here, not one that would need for me or Pastor Matt to stand up here and be like, it is against the rules at Austin Stone Community Church for you to look up vomit. If we see you looking up vomit, we're gonna throw you out of here. I'm serious, not one person of any age can look up this vomit. Anybody here need to hear that? No, right? Unless you're a dog. If you're a dog, you would need to have us make rules. Right, you're like, oh, warm vomit, you know, half digested hot dog, awesome, you know, and you, you go right at it. It has to do with your nature, not with the rules that are put on you. God saves you in a way that he changes your nature and he changes your appetites so that you begin to desire the things of God. And what the writer of Hebrews says is, he says, I see these changing desires in you. First John chapter two, verse four, right? If any of us say that we are in him and we continue to not keep his commandments, we are a liar. If the change has not happened, if there are not evidences of those changes, then Jesus has not really come into your, your life. And so the writer of Hebrews says, I look at you and I see the evidence is there. You wanna know how he teaches you find assurance of salvation? He puts together those four. He asks you, what posture are you in right now? You in a posture of surrender and faith? Have you, are you in one? Is your nature changing? Is this something that God keeps bringing you back to? Then you say, I don't remember when I prayed the prayer. It doesn't matter because the point is not the prayer. The point is the posture. Austin Stone, listen, we have to get this right because this is what God told us to make clear to the world, to make clear the way of salvation. And we gotta be so careful not to blur any of the lines. God said that Jesus paid it all and that all who would repent, which means surrender to his lordship, and believe, which means trust that he did everything necessary to save them, they would be saved. No one else, and all who did that, all who did that would be saved, and nobody else. I remember hearing a story in Colorado about some teenagers that were trying to play a prank, and foolishly, they went up to one of these mountain winding roads, and they painted over some of the lines that, that marked the road, they painted them black so that you couldn't see them. Bus comes along several hours later, and the pitch dark of night, looking in a, in a dense fog following these lines, the lines were covered. And so this bus loses its way and tumbles down the cliff to the death of everybody in there. And I hear that story. And I think this is what God has told me as a church leader to do to make those lines clear. 
I don't want there to be any ambiguity. I want you to understand that God does want you to know for sure. But the way of salvation that he has made for you is that Jesus paid it all and he is Lord. And you're in one of two positions in relation to the finished work of Christ. You're either standing in charge of your own life, hoping that you can be good enough to get your way to heaven, or you have realized there's nothing that you can do, that he paid it all, and you sit down and surrender to him and trust in his finished work. Charles Spurgeon preaching on Matthew 7, where it says, many will say, Lord, I did all this stuff. And he'll say, I never knew you. Charles Spurgeon preaching on that passage said, he goes, I read that and I say, Lord, say that to me. You could never say that to me. Why? Because when I knew that I had no chance at all of salvation, I cast all my hopes on you. I clung to your righteousness. I confessed that there was nothing I could do. And I clung to you, not once, not twice, but my entire life, I depended on you for righteousness and salvation and strength. Lord, never knew me, never knew me. I was the one who leaned upon your chest day after day and week after week. For if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved for it is with the heart that man believes unto salvation and with the mouth confession is made unto righteousness. All those who come to him will never be put to shame for there is no difference in the Jew or the Greek or the black or the white or the rich or the old or the young or poor. He is rich in mercy to all who call upon him for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved because he paid it all. Why don't you bow your heads with me if you would. I'm not sure where you are with this. Maybe this is your first time in a church and this all seems really new to you. The gospel is this, Jesus is Lord. His resurrection proclaims that he is the Lord. There's only one of two postures you can be in in relation to his lordship, surrender or rebellion. There's no negotiated stance. There's no, he's sort of in charge and I'm kind of in charge. You're either surrendered or you're living in rebellion. The gospel is the declaration that Jesus has paid it all. You've either embraced that grace as your own or you're trying to be good enough and earn your way to heaven. I would invite you, whether you're unsure about your salvation or whether you know that you don't have it to right now, seat yourself, sit down in submission to Jesus Christ and embrace his gift righteousness as yours. You may express that in a prayer a prayer that would sound something like, Lord Jesus, I surrender. I surrender, you're in charge, not me. Lord Jesus, I receive, I receive the gift that you poured out for my salvation.